Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello, producer Trent here, and welcome to the first Book Shambles of 2020. We hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's, and we are delighted to be back for another year. The first thing to let you know about is uh, we have got two live recordings of Book Shambles coming up in January. The first of those, January 19th, uh, we're part of the Chortle Comedy Book Festival at the British Library. Robin and Josie will be hosting that episode live and our guest will be Mr Mark Steele. And then on January 26th, we'll be at the Slapstick Festival in Bristol. For that episode, we're doing a PG Woodhouse special uh, Robin will be hosting that with uh, Joe Neary, who is uh, obviously the creator of the Wife on Earth podcast on the Cosmic Shambles Network. Uh, and we'll have a couple of guests along for that to talk about Woodhouse, uh, including uh, Sophie Ratcliffe from the University of Oxford, who is a Woodhouse expert. She edited the collection of his letters, which came out in a big uh, bumper volume a few years ago. So you can get tickets for both of those events. Uh, you can go to the events bit of the Cosmic Shambles website or go to uh, the Slapstick Festival website or the Chorter website or the British Library website. Thanks, as always, before we start this episode, to our Patreon supporters. We've got uh, new things lined up for Patreon supporters this year, uh, which we'll be revealing in the coming weeks. Uh, as usual, there's an extended episode, extended edition of this episode for you to listen to. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge your support. Uh, your support is what helps us uh, or enables us really to keep making these podcasts for everyone to enjoy. And the first episode for you to enjoy this year was recorded at the end of last year. Dr. Helen Chersky, who usually hosts Science Shambles with Robin, is in the guest co-host chair, uh, subbing in for Josie for this episode. And our guest is the comedian and author, Russell Kane. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, I don't know why I placed a particular pause there between Josie and Robin's and Book Shambles, but I did. Just to say, Sea Shambles is on sale now, which is a follow-up to our Space Shambles show at the Royal Albert Hall that sold out in 2018 and in 2020 at the Royal Albert Hall. We are going to be discussing all things that are the sea and myths and krakens or krakens and amongst others there will be Helen Chersky who's here at the moment. I am and I'm very glad everyone's getting excited about the ocean. It's long overdue. Yeah, it was going to be, it's still 80% mystery, so we don't know that that allows us to do lots of weird things. Helen's going to be there, Josie's going to be there, Steve Baxter's going to be there, Lem Cesar's going to be there, there are guest bands about to be announced soon. Anyway, that's enough of that merciless plugging. Here is today's episode. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today, the part of Josie Long is being played by Helen Chersky. Thank you very much, Helen Chersky, for very, playing the part of Josie Long. I'm very happy to. It's funny because I normally listen to this podcast while I'm out running, and I hear you tell I hear you tell us all who Josie is every week. 
And this week it's me. Yeah, it's you. Yeah, it's been a lot. Of, it's been this year. It's only been I think about forty-two to forty-four percent Josie playing Josie, and uh, Beck Hill and Sarah Kendall and Natalie Haynes, and and now you again. In fact, um, and we're joined today by uh, the uh, author and cultural commentator Russell Kane, and uh, and also a comedian. I swear into um, the microphone, get paid. End the of uh, um, you we're, we're, we'll get straight into talking. We did an event. In in Tring, uh, home of great taxidermy, and uh, as I told the audience that night, the lie of dressed fleas. They are not dressed; they are um, underneath a slide with a. Well, when I was a kid, so I'm making a face here because I I have never tried to dress a flea. Right. Well, you can't. Who does that? I, I would imagine. I think this is the whole issue, mm. which is when I was a child. Very posh dogs. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I will not be seen with my fleas are in waistcoats. I'm sorry, I have my pride. Well, that's almost like the, the, the old rumour, isn't it? About uh, well, of course, in America, they uh, have to dress the piano legs for otherwise the men are aroused, which is an entirely. It's not true at all. No, it is true because I went to America and I got an erection when one was unsheathed. No, no, no. But that, that, that's not. That's entirely about your love of furniture, not oh, your right, mistaking sorry. it for. Just edit that bit out. I probably shouldn't. Have no, it's that. absolutely fine. I, I, we, we've, we've still got the well, list. I of... had a picture of a flea with a Victorian dress to cover its ankles and I thought that was a bit racy. <laughs> no. The uh, the following IKEAs are the ones that Russell Kane is banned from. <laughs> Freud. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, but it's um no, so what they have is because that, that was that was one of the go-to museums of my childhood. They have uh, they have a little thing where you looked at look through a lens and it's fleas that are dressed in little clothes. And then when you've grown up you realise it's a slide of some clothes placed over two fleas. So they haven't had to uh, they also have, and this connects directly to Russell's uh, book and the, and the title of it, um, they have the, the uh, skeleton of a gorilla there. And when I was three years old, apparently I said to my mum as I looked at the skeleton of the gorilla, why has that old lady got no clothes on? Now, you can see what I was thinking as a three-year-old and how I was attracted. But, and the connection to uh, naked old ladies is Russell's new book is about an enormous collection he has of photographs of naked old ladies. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, no. It is, um, his, the title is Son of a Silverback. Uh, so there's the gorilla connection. The Old Lady Photographs is a separate book which he hasn't written yet. No. Um, the ant- I'm sure you all remember that Antiques Roadshow uh, where he came <laughs> on with that collection. It's, it's not probably- worth anything, but you are going for a 28-day search. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> probably wasn't the silverback you had in mind, though, right? I mean, I don't know what else, whether the images in Robin's mind would be on your mind when you were choosing a title. but No, um. the, the, silver, the eponymous silverback is my, is my dad, Dave Kane. The alpha male, sort of Essex, ultra masculine, knuckle dragging, asbestos removing, weightlifting, doorman, bouncer, lifeguard, you name it. He did it on steroids and lifted it. And about the conflict between me, the pepper army with hair on, effeminate, glittery question mark, please bring a girlfriend home, son, boy, that was his son in the bookless weird house I grew up in. Because you were, because that, that, that's, I mean, you know, originally you, you turned that kind of story of your relationship with your father into. An award-winning stand-up show. I mean, one that really will have been, I, I think, was was a, a huge springboard, wasn't it, into everything you've yeah. done since? Yeah. Well, I, I had no idea. I was I was doing the, the normal stand-up stuff. I just left sort of juggling the day job and uh, and the stand-up in the evening. And then I did a tour where I was supporting some bigger names. One of them was Russell Howard. And then I was doing okay on stage. But then in the car, everyone was crying, laughing. I had no idea why, because as far as I was concerned, I was telling a horrific story of my emotionally illiterate dad. But there was obviously something poignant, funny about it in a sort of royal family, um, Alf Garnett-y type way. 
that's more palatable for 2019. And Russell Howard said, you should do that on stage one night. But it took me another three years to go on stage and what about the time my dad did X? And people started laughing. I thought, hello, poignancy mixed with laughter. See you on the Mantelpiece Award. <laughs> well, I guess it's very recognisable. As a stereotype, it's very recognisable. And it sounds like you had the, the full-throated stereotype, like all of it. Yes. You know, there's, there's, there's bits of that that we would mostly recognise, but perhaps we haven't seen all of it all at once. And it sounds like you had the full dose. Yeah, and it's not, it's not necessarily... What I've learned is it's not class-specific. I got the working-class version of that. The thing I've learned from the book signings even more since I've seen you last at Hay Festival the other week is everyone had a dad, brother, uncle like that. Even the, like, the, So you think of the buttoned-up, posh, effete dads. They're not. There's some incredibly posh versions of this with no emotions, knuckle-dragging. The silverback alpha. It's just like a silver barboy jacket rather than fur. Well, you, I mean, your mastermind, one of your, your specialist subjects when you've done Celebrity Mastermind was Evelyn War. And, of course, you know, Oberon War, when he wrote his, his book, Will This Do?, was the time where he really did talk about the fact, the damage of yeah. Evelyn War. You know, Eve, Evelyn War, uh, tremendous emotional coldness. The, the, the uh, and I mean, there's, uh, I think it's in that book where Oberon War talks about during the war, four bananas arrived, and it was like, oh my goodness, there's bananas. And, and Evelyn War gathered the whole of the family, where all the children sit round a table and brought out the bananas, and they were thinking, we can have a banana. And then what he did was he peeled each one, placed it in a bowl, covered it in cream and caster sugar, and ate each banana in front of them and then sent them out again. So it's a different version. There's caster sugar. The moral cream. of that story. Yeah, yeah the, the, the moral <laughs> of the story is don't do that. I hope, you know, he, felt, unless... I hope he felt sick. You know, no, really. The, well, he will have done anyway because the Catholic guilt, whether it was indigestion yeah. or Catholic guilt, but, but that's you know, you're right. I, I think that that there's different ways it's translated. I mean, the, the, but my favourite thing he did to uh, Oberon, not favourite, the most beastly thing, was when Oberon accidentally machine gunned himself during army training, an injury that plagued him till he died. In fact, he ended up losing a lung. But it was at one stage, it definitely lucky he was going to die. He was hospitalised. He was given three weeks to live. I don't know if you know this detail. So Evelyn Moore stopped his allowance. It's like, what is the point in paying it for the next three weeks? Because he's obviously going to die. So he, he preemptively stopped his allowance. To, and then, of course, he survived. I don't Whether it was backdated, I don't know. But it's just, the, <laughs> it's just the way a brain can go, well, I might as well stop paying that then if you're going to be dead in three weeks. Not my son. And incredibly cold. I mean, I have my suspicions. Oh, God, I'm going to get in trouble here because... The relatives sometimes mention me and stuff. I'm not being horrible, but I've got my suspicions he might be psychopathic in a, on the you know on a medical level. How he writes such beautiful, connective, emotional, resonant, homoerotic in places prose. I have no idea, but I, but in the, in his personal life, I don't see how you could. Now that I'm a father myself, I just don't see how you could actually emotionally be, have the hardware to do things like that and not feel pain afterwards. It's incredible. But that is a very odd and interesting thing where, because I think there's some artists, creators, etc., who the disparity between who they are on stage, on the page, etc., is is very minor. No, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Well, I was thinking Paul Arago. I went to see the Paul I did, in Milton Keynes. Have you been to see I, it? I saw it in Milton Keynes, then I went to see it in Edinburgh again last week. Fantastic moved exhibition. Up there. Fantastic. But she, her, her son did a fantastic documentary. I don't know how well you know her work. I mean, one of the, the, the major things she did with her work was uh, she's from Portugal and the first time they had a referendum about the legalising of, of uh, abortions, not enough people voted in the referendum, so did nothing. She did a series of paintings, which are incredible paintings of, of women uh, kind of waiting for abortions or after the abortions, all that. Stuff. And they are so powerful mm. that the uh, the leader of, of the Portuguese government actually says, yes, they play, they went on tour and when we did the referendum, again he believes that and 
her work is some, a lot of its magical realism as well. Stuff in, uh, influenced by Martin McDonagh's uh, Pillow Man plays, things like that. But in the documentary with her son, her son, it's a beautiful thing where her son is finding out about her now now in her 80s. And all the time, what you do get reflected from her is she was not really able to communicate. Hmm. And you wonder how the, the kids really grew up because her communication was, again, very specifically in that art, which is quite incredible art and, and quite beautiful and wonderful and enigmatic and strange. But all doesn't of the, work if you're a five-year-old. Yeah, or even a fifteen-year-old. I think that the, all the, you know, the, the love that exists within her could not be expressed, as far as I can see, could not be fully expressed, or indeed sometimes ever expressed, hmm. when she was actually in a room with people. But it's this really interesting thing, isn't it? Like expression of things. And we live in a time when people are talking about this a lot, but it feels like for the past hundred years, nobody talked about expressing themselves. But I still see people who think they express, you know, they've heard all the, they, they go, oh, yes, I'm a modern person and I express all these things. And then you see that it's still there. There's still a socialisation where they're, they're too, there's some things they still can't touch. They're still too scared to admit that they, they feel they failed or they can't do them. Instead of just going, oh, well, that was a bit rubbish. You know, there's still it's still there. The repression is still there, even though, even in the openness, you know. We, okay, let's draw, an, let's draw an analogy with physics then. So, for, oh, sorry, for, you're trying because I'm a physicist. I'm grateful. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, I'm trying to, dis, I'm trying to disagree. I'm trying to river jump, as we used to say in the ad agency, into a different discipline to show the slight difference between Paula, Paula Rego and uh, Evelyn Moore, because I think one can be sort of locked in, but it. Exp- Expressive, so you can express yourself through paint. To actually communicate in language these connective feelings of love in a way that shows they were felt is harder to reconcile with someone who physically didn't seem to have the ability to, to process it, like something was missing. It would be like me unable to count or add up formulas or work out equations trying to do physics. It wouldn't be that it's locked inside and I can't get it out. It's like the part of my brain that com- computes and is arith- arithmetic is broken. And I'm not going to give physics. It's going to be a disaster. So I, I can't. Paul, with Paula Rago, I think she the stuff that was there came out in in its own way, maybe to the detriment of the children. From what I've read of even more, which is a lot, there's just there's nothing there. So where did there was nothing there to come out? So where did this writing come from? Does it mean it was a simulacra? It was all simulacra that he'd learnt how to by looking at paintings, learn how to feign emotion and express it on the page, and that we've all been tricked by these wonderful novels. But I think it can be so far locked in that there is a, you know, that there have been great artists where, again, you look at the, and you go, whoa, the disparity between creativity mm. and, and behaviour. I just think there was... But some of it's analysis, isn't it? I feel, and I, I, I don't know the writings of Evelyn War as well as you, but I, feel, I have definitely met people, I think, who um, they're so analytical that they can sort of analyse emotion. They can, mm. they can see, and one of the reasons they, some of them can write so precisely about it is that they can analyse it, but they don't, they don't feel it, but they analyse it. Is it that? Do you maybe, think that... maybe that's it on the head. Maybe they're not, they can't organically feel it. But, but that, that to me is just you know the creepy video when you watch a film and the serial killers learning the laughter before. <laughs> nice to meet you and practicing oh, in the yeah. mirror. <laughs> is was he just the prose equivalent of? That? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because that would be a rare occasion, wouldn't it? Because more often than not, I certainly see that in comedy. I think, and with most of of kind of performing arts, there are the bit where I watch someone and maybe because I've just done it so long and I've watched so many people, there's a bit where I go, 
I do not believe this human being. So a lot of extremely popular stand-up comics who are, you know, household names, I watch them and I go, nope. And that's not just because I know they behave like assholes when they get off stage. Mm. It's also that I go, there's something, you know, that, that image of the, the real smile, the bit with the muscles that only work uh, involuntarily. You know, mm. So it means you can't fake the real smile. Mm-hmm. And or in Michael Rosen's sad book, there's a beautiful illustration of that. Uh, Quentin Blake's illustration of him trying to smile when, in fact, there is only tragedy around him. Mm. And I think, so there is, you know, that would be faster. If even more, if none of those, if that bit, was a cold and cynical. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you say about the, the Richter smile, because I'm not a trained actor at all. I'm just sort of pinballed luckily around and ended up at the university. I'm very lucky, really, just one of the lucky ones from the estate. But So I accidentally, if I'm telling a story about Lindsay or about my dad, try, try to feel it as much as possible when I'm telling it so the emotions feel real. But particularly when you're doing an art centre tour or a tour with three four hundred six you've got to do this hundreds of times no matter how real the emotions are by time 120 i'm going to tell you about this time this happened you are sort of stabbing your leg with a compass just trying to feel something as you do the hilarious emotionally connective story so sometimes maybe with some stand-ups you're just watching a routine that they've done so many times they're bored shitless with it particularly if they're stadium acts that have just got to a certain level where they've left the planet I don't know. See, I find maybe it's about scale because obviously, you know, I play art centres. I don't play play big. Well, I mean, I play big places when I'm with Brian, but that's a different kind of exercise. But you know that I I did the last of my tour in Cardiff a couple of days ago, and I still enjoy do it because I change the order every night and I mm. change the stories within the stories and I find different ways of Same doing here. the voices and I make noise. You know, that's when a, it's adaptable, right? Yeah, because that's how I survive doing lots of is is if you can play with it within mm. then it's all right but if it's like you say there's only one story to tell and it's got yeah. to come here and you've got to do it again so to, what do you do then i'm in trying that to situation? mount a defense for our, our colleague i mean mine is my it's literally i go on with five bullets for the, my second half is 60 minutes first half's about 50 minutes second half 60 i probably got 11 bullet points for the entire night i know i'm going to do the story about Lindsay and prince charles but anything could happen before that i don't have set wording it's never written up so that helps keep it organic and alive. New things come out all the time. Sometimes I'll be three weeks on, I was like, oh my God, I used to put a, a tag on that. I used to do the funny bit where she went into the side room. I just stopped doing it in May because I forgot it. That's it's so funny it's not written do that. I did that because my tour's been broken up into three sections because I was off doing a book tour in between and doing the Brian tours in between. Uh, for the last 14 dates, I kept going, I know there's not any huge swathes of stuff that I'm no longer doing. Yeah. I also And, and on the last night, I found so many punchlines I'd forgotten. It didn't matter because I'd found alternatives, but it was like, ah, now this has got three punchlines because each time I've returned to the top, I've gone, I can't remember the original punchline. And that's do, do you find breathing. it's a thinking process? Because I find sometimes when I'm talking, and especially about stories about myself, things have really happened, I find myself, in order to keep myself entertained, I keep, I'm keep, I keep thinking about it and then I sort of discover more about it myself. I mean, in the process yes. of giving talks about this, have you continued to find things out or do you think you pretty much had it at the start and you're just no, it's expressing a, what you already knew? It's closer to Robin just as well. It's organic and living and breathing. I suppose it must be harder. That, see, comedy, un, unlike literature or, or science, it's not really one genre. It's more like a... I don't now. I'm trying to remember my taxonomic categories, but it's it's probably one up. So if I'm we say, sure there's a flea yeah. down there, and an old woman who hasn't we, got any clothes on. If we say the word um, physics, or if we say the word fiction, I would say it's one taxonomic level down to comedy, because because what someone who does one-liners 
it's almost a completely different art form. Someone like me, who's uh, biographical, it's only so emotionally connected you can be with one liners, and you certainly can't vary it up that much each night. If you're a genius of the one liner, Tim Vine probably is a genius on some level. I've seen him create jokes on the spot. Uh, he does when he, as he boils his kettle in the morning. He, he's got his routine. Do you know this? He tries to get 180 on the dartboard and write 10 jokes before the kettle's boiled. I mean, that's, that's just showing off. That's really. clearly someone, you know, like a prime, the sort of prime number generator you would find yeah. in Cambridge in, in a college somewhere in the corner of the library. Hello, sorry to interrupt the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it and I hope you'll come back after this brief message. Check out the Cosmic Shambles Network online shop. You can get book shambles shirts and tote bags, badge packs, notebooks and all that sort of stuff. There's signed hardback copies of my book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, and I'll personally dedicate them to you as well if you'd like me to. Everything you buy from the shop goes back in helping us continue to make the podcast and all of the science blogs and other things at Cosmic Shambles. We should talk about your book briefly as well, uh, but only briefly. Um, but it's great. I, I, we've done an event before, as I was saying, in Tring, and I really enjoyed it, and I found it... What I'm, what I'm still interested... We never really got to this, so it is basically about, as you said, it's the relationship between someone who would very much be seen as an alpha male, Essex, muscle, dive. you know, that... And you who see yourself very much as a kind of, you know, willowy, effete librarian type. But... I'm still interested because there's bits of you where I still see what I think is part of your dad in terms oh of some, God, of you, some of you. No, it's not. I'm a, changing onto a sofa for right. listeners. <laughs> As I now channel the ghost of Anthony Clare, <laughs> let me... Um, but no, I, there's little bits where sometimes when you have a certain flippancy over... Like when we started talking about uh, when we oh, did I that event, there, there was a moment where you talked about, uh, you know, I was like, oh, great, hang on a minute, I've now got this whole, you know, routine, you know, great, the, the bad relationship I have with my dad, pay dirt, going to win an award. Now, I think, to me, that's a bit of you going detaching yourself from the fact that also what you're doing has real emotional... I, I think it has to have emotional importance for it, you to be able to do this. My my absolute idol, if we're talking about books, I'm not a Dickens. I know it's terrible. I'm just, I like, I've read Dickens. I've got through them. Um, I didn't finish... Um, what's that? Oh, John Dice. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm a, tro- a trollop. I'm a trollop girls. No, I'm a trollop man. Anthony Trollop. Characters all day long for me. And then one of the books I read just when I didn't feel so odd about my work ethic that you were referring to was Anthony Trollope's autobiography. Which about 1880 it came out and it ended him critically for years because he dared to put down in pen and paper, look, I love what I do, the books are great, but for me it is a craft, I get up, I do it, I press a bell, I do a thousand words, ding, and then I'm off to the post office. And the best bit of the whole book is a chart where he goes, look, when I was creative on the warden, I made this many shillings. And then he just got, everyone just, he got cancelled basically because he, he wasn't mysterious and ivory tower enough about his um, profession. And that's, I was brought up like, yeah. I was brought up like that by my old man. And you graft and you do it and you just detach from it. When I'm on stage... And I'm feeling it, and I'm channeling it. It is an emotional experience, obviously. But as a as a craft, I see myself as a white van. Jokes in the back, boom. Pay the bills. You've done your. I mean, so I remember when we did. I was on Infinite Monkey Cage with you a few years ago, and I remember you. 
thinking you were so analytical about everything. You were very much in control. You walked in, you, you put your butter in your coffee, which you talked about before, and then you explained to us, as for the five millionth Everyone's time, probably paused, why you've done it. Everyone's just paused this and gone, wait, what, Helen? And then, <laughs> he did, I promise, I saw him do it. And um, But then you walked out and we were waiting just behind and you looked at the audience and you were listening and you were watching and you were very much in control. So it was a very... It, it's interesting, just this comparison of the, you know, the, the silverback and a lot of that is about wanting control, True. right? True. And you sort of, it looked to me as though you kind of sneaked underneath is that it was only because I had happened to see a couple of things and then I started watching you and you were, you were very, you got all the information you needed to be in control, but very quietly and very sort of mm. without making a fuss about it. But it's that, there's an interesting contrast there, I think, between the, because I think what we see with this sort of alpha male view is a desperation for control. That's what it really is. It's like wanting to matter, wanting to, to be important enough and all of that stuff. And and the, your contrast with you, it seems, is that you sort of, you have that, but you sneaked around the back to get it. I mean, that's the best of both worlds, isn't it? Creative, create a creative route to get the goals. It's, it's weird you saying that. It's like you've read the book because it's a description of how my old man faced out to the world. Or even up to the, we bought our own council house and he got planning permission to put pillars on. And I even saw the pillars like the two front arms of the gorilla standing forward, the steroid use, the need to count, the need to be seen, the need to dominate the environment. If you can't do it economically by accident of your birth, you can inject yourself with steroids, you're definitely going to grow, you're definitely going to conquer your physical space. That's how he saw it. And it's going to, I suppose, I mean, it's fascinating hearing that perception. It probably has had an effect on me. I do go into a place uh, prepped and making sure I can uh, sort of hold myself there maybe it is a fear of of not being able to control that environment but I mean it was a mantra that was just put into me from day one with my old man you know take care of number one take care of number one I try not to live my life well, so when I had kids that's when I found that mantra weird because yeah. how can you want to take care of number one if you've got some, some a partner and a child you adore you should be at number three at the very highest so I found that but he's still not unlike, you know, Evelyn War or anyone like that. Even in the book, even though there's there's very little kind of, you know, in terms of, of the way that you communicated with each other, right, the, the, in some ways there's a barrier, but he's still doing a lot of things as well, isn't he, to make sure that there is a solid foundation for you. And and so even though it's not, it's it's a different thing, isn't it? You, I don't get in that book a sense of you being rejected by no. him, but, but there's at the same time discussion doesn't really exist and there's a very simple set of rules as well it's, it's funny you should say that because just in bed last night me and Lindsay have fallen asleep and she's just she's read the book obviously read it before it came out but she's only just had read the audio book she wouldn't concede the point you've just made because I believe what you've just said Robin that he did make sacrifices he couldn't express it you know he gave up his health whatever to put a roof over the head and Lindsay's like yeah but every holiday and everything was about for him my wife's northern, so I drop into the void. Everything was for, was for him. So if it was a holiday, it would be somewhere my mum and dad would enjoy it and then me and my brother would be, uh, you know, bored senseless because it, it would be like white sand with nothing to do. So was he really about... Was it really about that? And I was like, yeah, but he was providing the basic structure. And, and also, then, he couldn't understand that you wouldn't. When you went to your incredibly boring holiday in Florida and never went to Disney World... Yeah. You know, but he just, made a point. He was so proud we weren't going to Disney because that's where the mugs go, the people that get sucked in and conned and crowd don't understand a trick is to be outside. Sounds like just what you described, Helen. Creep. I'm getting goosebumps from it. <laughs> the trick to be outside the system. So we'll stay six hours away, white sand, not a single tourist. Great. That was a long three weeks of my life. <laughs>
But again, he's not. He's not thirteen, fourteen. I still think, yeah, when you do, you know, have friends or or you read books about people who really do have that bit where there was no connection between the parent and child. I think it's very different to what I read in absolutely. that book. Absolutely, absolutely. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say it was that. My, I don't have these cold, harsh memories. I present, I'm trying to present them, not objectively, obviously, because I've made them funny, but I present the picture, and I, you see it as I see it, Robin, whereas my, my wife, who had this, you know, the idyllic Walton childhood, uh, see, doesn't see it like that. She's like, what a selfish bastard. I would have clashed with him. I would have given him what for and all that. But, um, but I, I, you're, you're, you're on, on the same page as me, pardon, pardon. But also there's <laughs> a thing which is, I mean, because... Um, you know, does your mum ever tell you anything, you know, concede anything about... Because their relationship, you know, that's a, that's a long relationship. Yeah. Clearly love, you know, there. And uh, does, do you ever... Does she ever tell you anything where you go, ah, my dad, that, you know, when, when, when you're not there and it's just him and her... Yes. Was that... Does she ever kind of reveal any of that? One, or that's just... The one which I ended up... Turn, again, it wasn't funny, but I said it in, the, like, a car to other comedians. They were like, you should say that on stage, was... He was very proud of you in private, which is a very funny image. Which, I, when I talked about it on stage, I turned it into Dad, I've got a first in English, I'll be in the shed if you need me. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, there's this slightly poignant, sad almost image that when my dad was down the pub at the end of the road, the Isaac Walton, which is just closed, yeah. he would be on apparently. Whether my mum's just saying this to make me feel better, arms on the bar, you know what my boy's doing now? He's in advertising, like a normal cop dad. Yeah. My boy's doing, he's only going to go to university. Can you believe it, Darren? Can you believe it, Dave? And I, that, I mean, I've never heard any language like that. But uh, very odd that as soon as I left the room, he was sort of, it was, it was sort of a, he was able to express it to other people. Sadly, typical, I think, that of, yeah. of many have, people again. Have you thought yeah. about what, about, are you, I mean, you, you, there's lots of reasons for writing a book, but it sounds like there's, there's things here that need to be talked about more. Is that part of why you wrote it? This sort of express, like, you know, do you, what would happen if another silverback read you this book? Have you had any, <laughs> like, what's the response? Do they ever, do they ever admit that some of that might be them? Yeah. Yes, it... I've had two types, I get two types of people in the book queue. I get the, that's me in there. I'm like that, and I, and they're like, sort of, are proud of it, which is a good sign in a way because it means I've. I wish I could do it in my fiction. I can't. I've managed to make a slightly unattractive character have an emotional connection to the reader. Hard to do when you're doing fiction. Obviously, I'm just giving the real Dave. And my experience, there was an emotional connection, but he was slightly unlikable. Um, and and then the first question. I've never struggled, sadly, with sharing everything with anyone that will listen. <laughs> so it all goes out on stage anyway. I wouldn't. It would be no hesitation. So it didn't have a psychotherapeutic effect for me because I've, there's nothing I've ever held in. Sadly, it's like blah. Um, and it didn't. It, it start. I had a friend who used to call that <clears throat> verbal diarrhea. That's what I had. Yeah. I wish she hadn't. Yeah. Yes. I, put, I just uh, added stand-up to it, which is like creative emodium, so you can just produce a stool for consumption. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I. Uh, and Robin I, complains when I talk about poo. Honestly. <laughs> it started as a self-help guide for dads. That's the book that got commissioned from Penguin. There was no information out there that I could find uh, for men to guide them through what they would be feeling during pregnancy. No one's trying to suggest it's even 1% of what a woman goes through. No one's trying to degrade the female experience. However... I quickly learned there was a lot of men suffering in silence with various emotions, this, that, and the other. All these things happen to men when, and no one dares talk about it for fear you're being seen as a man invading in a female space. So I'm like, I'm going to write that book. This is what I felt. 
this is what you're feeling, Gary, Dave, Oliver, all these people from all the different backgrounds, and I'm going to do a practical manual of some of the things I did. Started writing that, wrote one chapter with one paragraph. Of course, my childhood was very different with my dad. My editor was like, can I just have just another yeah. about 75 and a half thousand words of that, if you don't mind? And that was the end of my self-help book for dads. So if you still Google now, uh, dad advice, pregnancy, we're not talking about dad advice after birth. You will struggle on the whole of the internet to find a web page that doesn't end up in what you can do to support her. Also essential information you need to absorb first. But if you're not self-caring, some of the weird shit that goes on in men's heads, this is where I think a lot of couples run into problems in that nine months because they don't realise men can go a bit loopy too um, because there's, it might not be a physical change, but everything else is about to change. And well, so I think I, when, yeah, when Adamant had a... I think this, this was correct. It might be wrong now, but when he had a, a nervous breakdown some years ago, I think it was shortly after his wife had a child. And for him, the loss of being number one in the relationship that's and that's you know that, that that's nothing that's ever particularly worried me i don't think i've ever been that high in the no. chart so it's um yeah, but before your kids you were holding space three anyway yeah yeah yeah, that was, uh, yeah. <laughs> i seem to have dropped out of the top 30 i've done a lot of work with it Amster bookshelf uh, doorstop plugger can you send my plug around to have one? but it was uh but yeah that that bit for some some people i know that that that's one of the, the major psychological disasters is um what about me and and you we're brought up particularly if we're british to be ashamed of emotions like that and there is something shameful in it when this per the person at, at the time of recording still the female uh, get, can get pre can get pregnant and and she's the one making all the sacrifices her body's going to be ripped into her hormones she's the one's going to come off work. it is selfish and pathetic but you can't stop the crazy dark lesions and there's nothing you can do so you're better off saying i'm having this childish three-year-old emotion how can we engage with it and do something about it you might be pleasantly surprised if you actually spoke to your partner more likely you'll be knocked out and go how dare you i've got water retention fuck off but you never know you might get a receptive ear it's <laughs> a starting bit... point is you have to start somewhere other and men I think honesty a... is the way to start other blokes would be a good a good thing but men dare not even put the the head over the the uh, you know the trench with with things like this because even in 2019 we're in the dark ages of of men sharing thoughts about we're talking about pregnancy and, and birth and i think sometimes that's why ironically the girls and uh, the women in your life end up with less support than they get because you've obviously got to make sure everything's running inside you i mean I, when i ended up talking about it on stage i was this this moment that i found out all men had been through and there's nowhere referred to never spoken about never discussed one of the deepest most existential out of body weird experiences a man will have not every man has it but most is when you go home if she if um like Lindsay had to stay in hospital for 48 hours because she had a c-section night at home on your own one of the weirdest nights you will ever experience as an adult male sat at home for first bait and I didn't know what was going on I couldn't sleep I started doing French verbs in the conservatory about 3am you just like what what do I do you feel like you need to be doing something the I two, painted the bathroom the two things that's what I did <laughs> I got back and thought do you know what I've, there is, there's been all that mildew there I'll paint the bathroom isn't that interesting that the response is doing I don't know what to think so I'm going to do 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 because that's the that's that's something you know you can do right you're not sure not ever sure you can think I guess in that situation but, but you know you can do you're in protect mode too 
you, the the two, the now two things you care about most in the world that you would literally give your life up for are, are two, three, maybe ten miles away, and you're sort of a pathetic waste of space, collection of cells doing nothing, sat at home painting a bathroom or learning French verbs. Then you get out of the car, and I literally stopped like I'd hit a wall in the car park, like it was in the Truman Show, and I'd hit the border, holding an empty car seat, unused, about to cross this threshold, this life-changing step, Neil Armstrong shit that will no, never come back from. And I thought, I cannot tell Lindsay what I've expe experienced. And <laughs> go, I had an existential crisis in the car, but you have to been sewn up from a pudendum to my belly button. Do you want to fuck off and I'll be knocked out? And you've just got to keep it in. Now, it cannot be healthy for me to wait three years and then talk about it in comedy format on stage. Yeah, it's, it's the best way to do it. <laughs> it's financially done yeah, very well. But, but and that's... What, it must be loads of other blokes. But it'd be good if it didn't come as a surprise. I mean, even if yes. you didn't talk about it afterwards or at the time. It's normal, probably. For it to come as it's a surprise is a bit probably normal and healthy. And I, it made me feel selfish, self-absorbed, making the experience about me, pathetic. Why, aren't I, why isn't it about her? And I had all this, neg this self-reflective negative stuff when, in fact... It was probably a positive thing. I should have skipped around the car park and enjoyed the, the Neil Armstrong moment, you know? But that's true. A lot of these difficult things, isn't it? Is that you, whenever the, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are more than one people, more than one person in any situation and you've always, everyone has an emotion, even if there's a dominant emotion, you still have to be aware of the others and acknowledge them. And people don't do that. And I think that's one of the things that I see. I see a lot of worry in men now who, you know, they have... They know all about feminism. They know all about these things. They go, oh, I want to help the women do this or whatever it is. And then they go, oh, now what do I do? What What's left, right? And it's not that anyone is trying to take stuff away from them unless they're, you know, literally being paid the money that should go to a woman. <laughs> it's uh, none of that. But um, but it is the, there's no, society has done all right at the first bit, but it's not done all right at the now what? What, what, what about the rest of the space? And I think, I keep saying this thing that women are not going to get career equality until men get emotional equality. And no one has really worked out what emotional equality is in that context mm, so right. like, how does that's that work quite, quite a controversial thing to say what you just said there really oh dear, is it <laughs> no no I, I think it is because it it dares to it dares to say what you've just said but what you know what about the bits left over sort of thing what about the aftercare package yeah we bought this bought the f1000 feminism package now what about the aftercare package and there's lots of men are inventing it it's all right for people like me that have verbal diarrhea and degrees and can express ourselves and have wonderful lives anyway but i think a lot of the toxic stuff pours into that void that doesn't need to be there um, so anyway, that's what the book was supposed to be, which would have been <laughs> fascinating and engaging, but nowhere near as funny as that time Dave ripped his shirt off in the nightclub. But it means you could, the follow-up's done. True. You know what that's, that's, uh, that is an interesting, that, that thing of, because last night on the Monk Cage, where Richard Wiseman was taught, in fact, I don't think we actually did it on the show, but some of his notes were about uh, male and female differences in humour, which is, according to studies, men joke more and women tell more stories. And that right. is uh, that idea where a joke, and I know that uh, certainly Philippa Perry's talked about that kind of idea, is often deferring actual contact with the reality. It's 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 it looks like you're dealing with whether it's death or birth or whatever, but actually it's a joke and it's nothing really. It it, it whereas a story will normally take you a little bit deeper into the the, the reality. And would foot foot, uh, which I cannot stand, but football would be the ultimate version of that. Just yeah. a game of the weekend. How are you? Dave. <laughs> well, that that emotion, that's always a... You know, to me, one of the strangest sights is to see someone weeping off the flag they've painted on their face. You know that bit when, when a mm. team loses and you just see there, slowly as the cross of St George is wept mm. off. 
remember and that. That's Theresa, the, the, that was Theresa May's last conference, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but that, yeah, that's a, a fact. But the joke <laughs> thing is interesting because I, so, you know, I am from the North, even though people think my accent has changed a bit these days. But there's a lot of low-level joking on the North about to deal with things in general. Yeah. Like if something's a bit rubbish or someone's ill... There'll be there's this low level joking that goes on all the time. I've never thought I've just thought it's a, a healthier coping mechanism than telling a sad story, right? Mm. But you get this, you know, it's like rumbling along little low low key dry jokes thrown into everything else. Um, You're right, actually, because I, I live in the north now. Um, I live I married a girl from Manchester, so I would I would I would agree with that. It's there's there's sort of more of a banter culture. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily see a gen, the gender divide so much, would no. you? No, I don't think so. But it, but it, it is a, it's a way of acknowledge, it's a way of saying things. It's a way of acknowledging things that are quite, um, that could be quite depressing to say. If you were telling a story, it would be a sad story, but you can acknowledge it and say it, and it's someone, you know, it's someone saying. But is it acknowledged? Because sometimes I think it's acknowledging, and sometimes it's like we've dealt with that, we've done the punchline, we've dealt with that, and and you move on. Because when when my mum died, one of the things that the next show that I did, it wasn't about that. Don't worry, I'm not that, uh, you know, uh, but. There's two really stupid stories that are based around the day of her death and the day of the funeral, and they're stupid. And, there's, and I said, I'm going to tell you, and there's nothing, there's no, there's no art required here. There's no award that will be given because one's about when I suddenly got diarrhoea, uh, and another one is going to an award ceremony on the day of my mum's funeral, and they're both stupid, and. That bit of just going, right, I'm going to go through that story. And I think that's a, there's an interesting thing sometimes where when you find the story that can be both funny and is actually facing up to a reality, because that's one of the things Philip Perry talked about, which is some jokes, the setup to the joke when you're talking about, you know, it might be loss or whatever, the setup acknowledges it right from the start and you are actually saying this has happened and other jokes are, here's a joke about death, which is not really about, you know, and, and now it's dealt, we don't have to talk about it again. And I think it's an interesting thing with stories, which is that this is, you know, when you can turn something in your life that might have been problematic or strange into a story that's kind of a bit of a funny story, it allows you also to then kind of revisit it Acknowledge it and do all that stuff, and I don't, you know, and, and I to think, talk about it more, yeah, because you yeah. can. It's socially acceptable, and there's more environments in which you can make a, a joke or tell something that kind of gives something. You're not just, you're, it's like a little present at the end, isn't it? The yeah. punchline is like not you two are the professional comedians. I've no idea why I'm telling you this, but you know, it's like the gift. There's a little mm-hmm. gift at the end, so it's okay to say the thing, which sounds a bit sad because there's a gift coming. Yeah. Whereas if you were just saying the sad thing you kind of feel you're taking from people without giving anything back. Yeah, don't worry, this isn't a story about loss, it's a story about diarrhoea. Yeah, so Stay in your chairs <laughs> while I continue. Although I lose the contents of my bowel. As <laughs> <laughs> I say, it sounds like some, sometimes your pro, a joke is to procrastinate or to prepare or like the foreplay of emotional interaction and sometimes it facilitates it because there, there were two different two, two different uses. Probably, it's like anything that evolved in human culture. It probably evolved in two different ways in two different places. There, there must be a survival benefit attached to it because we find people that with good humour att- attractive. So there, there's obviously some sort of... The people that were able to joke probably lived longer. <laughs> so if, if Darren came up to the edge of my cave, I was like, chill out, Darren, the sun might never shine. Ah, you made me laugh. I probably didn't get my head clubbed in. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, of course, actually, the statistics are that comedians do try, die earlier. Yes, yes. Out of oh, all the arts, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Whether their audience do, that's a different story altogether. But we're but, not, uh, but, well, that would be because we're not using it in its normal social context. No, you, it would be because we do it in pubs and then you stay <laughs> drinking. 
drinking, and then all the f- all, all the proper food that is available is no longer available, and you eat things you with you know you're chips. putting loads of butter in your coffee, and one thing <laughs> leads to another. By that, and um, we've we've almost run out of time. So no, because, because you you did a um, this is uh, I think I'm right. That clock's right, isn't it? Can I just check? Is that how long we've been running? Right. So I will. Um, so quickly. You. Uh, I love the fact that I think it is, you know, again, before we were talking sometimes about those ideas where you go, and I want, hang hang on, this is going to make me money and all that stuff. But you going off and doing a degree, which, you know, in English and getting that, you know, you made that chance to mm. go. And you, as you mentioned in the book as well, it's quite near the end, but you talk about the fact that it meant you did have a different approach to it because, you know, you weren't just someone becoming a student, which was just par for the course of that particular middle class background or whatever. You were someone who goes, I really want to read. So yeah. you immersed it's yourself. Ang- angry learning. I think 21 is the bullseye age to go to university. You're still young enough to hang with everyone that's 18. No one would have a clue. But those, my God, those three years of... Work not not travelling to like Botswana and doing a project, go and work in a shop, go and do a shitty job for three years. Let's see see how the how what real life is like. That was the rocket fuel I needed. It really was. I was like te- almost tearing the pages out of Pride and Prejudice as I went through it. I'm going to absorb you, Austin. It was like an sort of. I try, I've never found a sat. I need to contact Tim Vine. A satisfying coinage, <laughs> the opposite of a nervous breakdown. Yeah, but yeah. if you say nervous break up, it doesn't sound right. But it was the, the reverse. It was like I was suddenly put together like a transformer. This this moment, which I talk about in the book, where I started seeing a girl that was at university, and the wall was pulled from my eyes about all these wonderful things called learning and universities, and it was just this power, this fuel came out of nowhere. I'm like, I'm going to learn everything. So it's kind of it's a nervous big bang, isn't it? It's I a kind so. of suddenly <laughs> the uh, all these different particles and they they come yeah. together and, and you go, wow, that, look at that. that planet's Jane Austen and that planet over there is. You know, Emil so. Zola and the, the um, who do you who do you are the certain authors you mentioned Trollope obviously, but the 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 authors that you go I don't know what I want to read today, so I'm going to return to this the blue blanket the comfy blue blanket of an author where you go oh I love returning to this novel. Uh, so my favourite book is probably Madame Bovary. I reread that every two or three years, but I don't really read it because I'm reading in translation. Sadly, that's why I tried to learn French. I was desperate to read it in the original, but beyond me, sadly. Uh, so I love Flaubert. I, I, this is the most unfashionable author to love, and I just got lucky on a good read the other week because um, my fellow guest was also a mad fan of Iris Murdoch, who's perhaps the least fashionable author ever at the moment. Is she? She's the chintz curtain of literature. Uh, <laughs> but because it's the centenary, I'm trying to get it going. Uh, I, but that's interesting. Why do you think that... that has, has elitist, the, the, the... Don, elitist, donish, twee, all the things I love... About her, most people would turn their nose up at. I was being taught by two incredibly talented people: a poet called Maggie Butt and a novelist called Sue G. Both got books on the on the way out at the moment, and a sort of creative, weird lady called Susanna Gladwin was always appearing at the campus with glasses and books hanging out. And they would always have an Iris Murdoch clutch. I'm like, who is this Iris Murdoch? I want I, and just pure chameleon urge to be liked by the teachers. Get me, got me to pick under the net her first novel off the shelf, which I cannot recommend enough. And in there was everything I needed to know about growing up, uh, not growing up, about transitioning from teen to thirty-year-old, from from nineteen-year-old to thirty-year-old. It's all in there, and uh, it's fantastic. It's the Italian girl hers as well. That's, yeah. yeah, that's not one of the best ones, but that is right. one of hers. 
Um, but yeah, and the sea, the sea, which uh, Harriet Gilbert couldn't stand. She's the host of the world. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Uh, the sea, the sea is about a, a guy called Charles Araby who moves to the coast. Have you read it? He moved, no. moved, moved to the coast and he's a complete hermit and um, hates everyone and he's very eccentric. And uh, I made all of the recipes in the book, which Iris Murdoch only put in there, a sort of weird word association. So I, I was eating at university like things like boiled onions and tinned sardines, just so I could be like <laughs> Charles Araby from the scene. I mean, I went mental. I read every word she's ever written. I joined the Iris Murdoch Society. I was going from my humble... What do you do at the Iris Murdoch Society? So I'd, had to get, on, I'd get on the train... Apart from, from eat onions and... <laughs> I was getting on the train at my humble university and, and then going to Oxford and like pretending I was at Oxford for a day and sitting in the, the lectures. And it, it, Well, people who love Iris Murdoch tend to be philosophers because a philosophy is still sort of Yeah, fashionable. I've read more of a non-fiction, like yeah. a book on Sartre and stuff like that, which has yeah. come out in various different And the Neoplatonism and... bang on, really, uh, for some of the challenges we've got today in our society. Um, but I, so I would have to wait for my little crumbs of when people started talking about the books, and I would hang out with my cup of red wine with people that were from better backgrounds, better educated than me. It was just the books just spoke to me. So if I was going to do anything for a comfort blanket, in fact, long overdue is to reread The Bell, which has just come out on audio book read by Miriam Margulies, un, unabridged by Miriam Margulies. Is that set in a commune or something? Yes, and a late. I started that once, and then I lost a copy of it. I'll get that back. It's brilliant. And read a be- it over a bell, Christmas. Well, spoiler alert: a bell gets submerged in a lake. I mean, that's a that's the start of it and it's how we're going to get this bell out of the lake and she just has these I don't know if it's because I I like the way you've made it sound like a Laurel and Hardy film why did you put the bell in the lake (laughs) existential Laurel and Hardy that's how I would describe Iris Murdoch uh, Does it make a difference listening to it on audiobook or read? Because presumably, you know, when you're at university, presumably you're reading physical books, yes. but you listen to audiobooks now. Purely right? so I can read. While if I, so obviously, there's a lot of driving with this job. If, if I, sometimes you're being driven, sometimes you're driving. I do. I, I will do things like, right, I'm going to clean the bathroom, audiobook in. And that's, I, do, I go on 1.5. So speed. does it make a difference, though, as, as a fan of books to start it, with? It's fun, you... fun enough you should ask this. I got so uh, annoyed with people saying, if you haven't really read it when I've just done, at the time, I'd just read War and piece 60 hours it was my first tour unabridged audiobook read by frederick davidson war and peace i can't <laughs> recommend it enough and uh someone implied that i hadn't read it as much as someone who'd read the book which is nonsense because i was i can it's gone in so i actually this is the most bizarre job i've ever got Mariella frostrup was off for a week i don't know how far down the list they got but i ended up hosting open book just once i mean can you imagine uh and i was allowed to pick one non-fiction discussion subject to my choice so i got uh, a psych a psycho a neurologist in a psychologist a literary scholar in to debate whether a book is absorbed and sits in the same drive as as one who has read it with with a book paperback or hardback and it seems it seems to be no difference at all um it comes I was down... asking in terms of enjoyment, actually, just in More... terms of you know a book that you really love. So one of no, I think equally. Books, I, I, I... So you enjoy it both ways. There's no difference in the the sort of things you take from it or anything like that. No, if you if you've got like the new William Boyd or something, you can't. You know, you're almost turning two pages at a time when you're on a holiday, <laughs> and you all you've got to do is go and get a pina colada. And you're like, I'm just into it so much. It's the best feeling in the world. But I love audio books when you forget the narrator. You should forget the narrator within a minute, and then the literature. It's like 
having it injected. It's like a sublingual literature under the tongue, straight in, without the books and the pages. Now you've said that, I'm going to get out my uh, cassette recorder because <laughs> someone recently gave me Tom Baker reading Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, <laughs> so I'm going to start off, and Tom Baker reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That will be oh. my joy. Son of a Silverback <laughs> is also, you can listen to it, which you'll gain just as much by listening to uh, Russell uh, read his book. So that's available on, on Audible. My book as well, I'm a joke and so are you. Is, which is I've read, on and I, far too modest, I've read it. It's absolutely fantastic. Did you do, when you did your Audible book, did you find yourself going, I'm going to change some of these things? And not some, I'm going to change a lot of these yeah. things. <laughs> if I'd had an extra day, I would have, yeah, so much. Did you do an audiobook for Storm in a Teacup? Yeah, well? they didn't let, they didn't even ask me to read it. They got oh. a, they got Chloe Massey, who's a Lancashire actor, t- uh, to do it. And they didn't even ask me. And I was like, oh. I, I think that's a like real pity because I think why, if why you can read, read, I've seen you. you I you can know read. To, I definitely know how definitely to read. You can. <laughs> and, and you I love that Hungry Caterpillar one. You absolutely yeah, loved it, didn't def- you? Definitely can do more than two sentences on a page on a good day. Yeah, no, didn't even ask. But it does exist. It was a fear of getting someone else to read mine. Because there was, there was a program on once about um, some documentary or something, and I'd said something controversial. And um, my manager was like, just don't get involved with it, or they'll make you look like idiots. So I provided a written statement. They're like, do you want to voice your written statement? And I was like, no. So they got an actor to do it. And the actor was like, oh, I'm totally discreet with what's been featured. And they got like Cockney, Cockney <laughs> urchin voice to read out oh, of our statement. <laughs> but That's you ever what I what find weird <laughs> when you sometimes see films that have been done. Like, well, um, Bob Hoskins in The Long Good Friday, you know, his, his, his great breakthrough movie and still, I think, a wonderful film. Uh, the Initially, he was dubbed for the American audience what? by a Birmingham actor. <laughs> I'll tell you soon, I'm going to find out in Tom and the Pond, Jim and Ben and Wankers aren't here with me long. I've heard of sleeping Pond, you're in a fucking coma. Right, so they... And, and he get hold of that? Can you see it anyway? Impenetrable. No, as far as... Because he, he got... He, he said... That's that accent is as impenetrable as my Cockney accent. Oh, it never went out in America. No, they, they did the print of it, and he found out, and he was like, "What? They've dubbed me." And uh, so yeah, someone's that's a, got that, and that is yes. Anyone somewhere. listening to this has got that. If it doesn't, I will find a print of it, and you and me will put oh, on my Longer Friday. Get, Prince Charles let's Cinema. Oh man, I love that film so much. Um, Thank you very much for, for joining us, Russell. This is so Son of a Silverback is out now. Uh, Helen's books, uh, both the, the Ladybird book on Bubbles, which is great, and also Storm in a Teacup, which is fantastic because it changes the way that you see all the things around you and how they interact and how they're part of the, the world of physics. And also, Helen, as I mentioned right at the start of the show as well, will be part of uh, Sea Shambles at the Royal Albert Hall uh, next year. Thanks for listening. Go to the cosmicshambles.com website where there's lots of other stuff as well as all these podcasts and other people's podcasts and bits of films and science journalism and normal journalism and me talking some rubbish in some blog post or other about therapy or something and uh, and also patreon.com where you can um, give us some money that would be nice go on you might as well it's near the end times bye Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Uh, thank you to anyone who came along to the Nine Lessons shows and stuff over Christmas. Uh, people who purchased uh, stuff through uh, the merchandise stall there and the the online cosmicshambles.com slash shop. Shop. We'll be back next week with uh, another new episode. I can't remember already. Uh, I can't remember who the guest is for next week. So that is an excellent sign. 
uh, of things to come. Don't forget, January 19, we're at the British Library with Book Shambles Live with Robin, Josie and Mark Steele. And then uh, PG Woodhouse special at the Slapstick Festival in Bristol on January 26 with Robin, Joe Neary and friends. Hope to see you at some of those. Check out Robin's website for upcoming live dates for him. There's uh, a couple on there, including a double bill in Norwich. Josie is on tour throughout this year. Check out her site for those dates. Have a great week. Excited to be back for another year of Book Shambles. We will see you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.